I don't know. What's it called? Album Club? State of Market Album Club. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Get yourself together. You know, I've only been on one. I've only been on two. <laughs> Good start. Welcome to the State of America Album Club. An in-depth roundtable discussion on music's most notable albums. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the State of America Album Club. This week, I am your host, David. And with me is Sean Hillman. Sean, how are you? I'm good, sir. How are you? Sam Soupy. Sam? Very well, thanks. Our version of Baba Booey, producer extraordinaire, Mr. Jason Donces. <laughs> good evening, fellas. And the guy that's a co-host of State of America with me, Mr. Ian Rice. Hello, everybody. All right. So this week, it was my turn to pick, and I selected the... Bruce Springsteen classic Born to Run. It's his third studio album. It was released August 25th, 1975. It was recorded at 914 Studios in the record plan. It was produced by Mike Appel, Bruce Springsteen, and John Landau. Jimmy Iovine, who you know is a very successful record producer, judge on American Idol, and founder of Beats Headphones, was the engineer at the record plant. He was very young at that time. After the sales of Springsteen's first two albums, the record company went all in on him for one last try to make it big. And the album is an ode to those trying to escape the real the real world and the consequences of remaining. All right. So what we'll do here as usual, we'll go around the horn and talk about uh, the songs. I already think me and Sam Soupy may team up and have to pull be like the Road Warriors and take on all comers on this one based on the comments in the text thread but that's all right sam we can handle them can't we i think i hope so david <laughs> i just have a quick question before you know doing this were you a fan of bruce springsteen or we'll get into that <laughs> <laughs> we'll get on to that on, on song number four all right so the the opening song is one of his best known and most beloved songs uh, I think it's one of the greatest songs ever written sam sufi's gonna agree with me on that it's thunder road Like a vision she dances across the porch as the radio plays Roy Orbison singing for the lonely Hey, that's me and I want you only Don't turn me home again, I just can't face myself Now, you can even be a casual Bruce Springsteen fan, and you know about this song. Even though it was oddly never released as a single, the fans love it. And uh, what I like about it is it, it starts off with a, with a harmonica and piano, which is very subtle to start an album, especially one that's going to be this kind of bombastic and epic. But there are four epic songs on this album, and this eventually turns into one of those. Roy Bitton, the, uh, they call him the professor. He's the piano player in Glockenspiel guy in the band he's been with bruce a long time and, and has even been with bruce when bruce done some solo stuff the beautiful piano medley starts off as the boss sets the setting for the story 
Uh, he's asking Mary to not turn his back on him and run away with him. It uh, is just a, a song of somebody trying to change their, essentially change their happiness. They're, they're unhappy. Uh, they're just looking for somebody to hit the road with them and, and just have a better life. Mary is the one that he's going for. It's got a, a very uncomfortable lyric in it. You ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right. <laughs> That's just all right with me. That one, uh, I don't know if that would go over too well in today's day and age, but I believe this is, in my opinion, where essentially the E Street Band was born on this song. You have the classic sound of the big man Clarence Clemens on the outro on the saxophone. Uh, this is my favorite sax solo of his. We'll get to one at the end that a lot of people think he is, but we get the glockenspiel. Now, that's going to kind of be a, a trademark of the Bruce Springsteen and E Street band sound in the 70s and and somewhat into the 80s uh, he got the title of the song from a robert meacham film now i've read three books on him in the last couple of months and one of the things that's interesting is a lot of times he picks a title for a song and then starts writing around it anyway like i said i believe this is the birth of the classic east street sound i think it's a perfect song all right mr hillman gonna throw it to you first your thoughts Wow. Well, uh, thanks again for having me on. And David, you might be surprised from what little back and forth that we've had. I actually agree with you on this being one of the greatest songs, I think, written. Um, it certainly defines Bruce Springsteen in his early years. It certainly put him helped put him on the map. I got to tell you that I think now the saxophone solo you talked about helps the song justify this version but the the live acoustic version that was done i think on a greatest hits album a few years later by far and away tops this one but this version is not bad i i really enjoyed it it's probably my favorite bruce song of all time which you know makes the rest of the album a little bit of a disappointment for me i also can't say enough about the visualization that this song and there's several on this album great visualization it's like when you read a good book you can see everything playing out clearly in your head and this song is uh one of the best that does it ever but yeah that said i i think the acoustic version was better and i have a big problem with this opening the record i think thunder road should have closed this album out mm -hmm. and i i just i'm not sitting well with it opening because as i kind of said in our text thread I think it's all downhill after this, with maybe one exception, which I'll get to later. All in all, I love the song. I do think it's one of the greatest songs ever written. Um, but as the casual Bruce fan that you described in the beginning of the show, that's about as as deep as I'll get with it. All right, Mr. Soupy, you're a super fan. What are your thoughts? I mean, it's it's hard to talk about this song and say something new about it. I mean, it's a classic song in the history of rock and roll, period. It's definitely one of Bruce's most famous, you know, well-received songs. I actually love it as the album opener. And the reason I do is because of the way it opens with the piano and the harmonica. I see Born to Run as like a, it's definitely not a concept album, but I see it as a song cycle, these eight songs. And they do kind of weave in and out in a really good running order. And to me, it almost opens like a like a Broadway play would with a, with a piano and somebody, you know, coming to, you know, coming to start the action of the play and basically what he's doing pleading for this girl to get in his car. Um, I just think it works well as the opener. I mean, the lyrics, the, the song is wild to me because think about the structure of the song. If you've listened to it over and over again, there is no chorus to this song. 
Thunder Road does not have a chorus. It's just one big long verse. It's like I don't know many songs like that. I don't know many people writing songs like that. I don't know many famous songs like that. It's very unique in that respect. And the line, uh, you're scared and you're thinking that maybe we ain't that young anymore is pretty wild coming from a guy in his early 20s who really hasn't, you know, lived the life he's going to live yet. I thought that was an interesting lyric uh, at that point in his life to write. And it's just, I don't know, I think it kicks the album off in great fashion. The end, the build up to the sax solo and the coda at the end is just awesome. And if you've seen it live, it's, you know, it's just what that does to you when you see a live is a totally different animal and a different song all all together. And it's just a, a great part of the show. So I, I love the song. I don't know what else I could say new about it. All right. From our long Island branch, Mr. Ian Rice. I, I would agree with you, David. I think this is a, a proper introduction to the E street band. I, uh, I do think it's an appropriate uh, intro to the album because it kind of starts off at a, at a slow pace, slow build. Um, my background with Bruce Springsteen, as some of you know, but just to give it some context here, I've been a loose fan of Bruce Springsteen for a while. There's a lot of his material that I really like, but I never really dug too deep until David yanked me down the rabbit hole. So, but uh, I mean, I've always kind of known these songs. I mean, obviously, you know, as has been mentioned, Thunder Road uh, looms large in his legend. You know, it's a big, uh, it's a big tune for him. I think it's great. I think it sets that talking about the blue collar experience pace that you know a lot of his songwriting is uh grounded in uh very nicely and uh you know i, I think it's a great tune i mean uh, you know as sam said there's really not a whole lot new you can really introduce about this song it's been talked about a lot because it's one of his uh you know quote-unquote classics but uh i think it's a great way to start the album all right mr producer well it sounds like i know my role on this podcast because when i hit play on this song I thought maybe I made a mistake and started two records at the same time because I was really confused because the piano part didn't really mesh quite right with the harmonica part. I thought maybe I was listening to two songs at the same time. So that took me a minute to decipher. Then when the piano part kicks in, the staccato stabbing piano, uh, I I didn't really get into that to begin with. I'm going to speak more about our buddy Ray as we go along because the style of piano playing that he brings to the table is a little bit jarring to me with all the staccato stabs. About halfway through the song, we get the first time we actually get the Thunder Road hook. Uh, There's not really a chorus to it, um, but that's when the familiarity kicked in of like, oh, that's right. I think I've heard this song before. Unfortunately, it doesn't show up again until 3.15 in the song. Uh, I just feel like that's kind of a thing that if Bruce is going to be more accessible to the public mainstream, he's got some great hooks to his song, like the Thunder Road one, but it they happen so few and far between. It's definitely not a pop structure, which I can appreciate to a certain extent, but it's it's very difficult for somebody who's not a fan to casually just listen to it and be able to absorb it. I struggle to understand the lyrics at all. I can tell that it's a storytelling song, but I'm having a hard time following the story. And just the piano over time just starts to grate on me with all of the like, Ray, we don't need to fit so many notes into one measure. Like, can we just back off the piano a little bit? I do think that the instrumental section at the end with the the sax solo and then into the coda, that is definitely the best part of the song. He does that several times throughout the record. And I 
I can see where that would translate to the live experience being much more enjoyable because those codas obviously can be built off and played out and and pushed into a long form. But as a just a song I would sit down to, I recognized it, but it this didn't really draw me in. This wasn't I was like, that's not really what I was hoping for. For me, as I mentioned in the text thread, it gets a little better as we go along. Well, I will say this, and Sam will agree with me, I'm sure. Prior to, well, he won't agree with this part. Prior to February 18th of this year, I would have been completely on board with you, Jason. I thought the piano and the glocking spill was just very off-putting, and I saw him live. And now I understand it. I get it. That That's kind of a running theme. I, I All of you that are saying all these negative things prior to February 18th, I would have I would have probably agreed with you more than not. But we're going to go to the second song which is uh, 10th Avenue Freeze Out. To me, this is all, and please don't get mad. This is kind of like their wiser time, so to speak. This is oh a song that, that they extend out and they're going to play it every show. This, I think it's the most played show, uh, song in the catalog, maybe next to Born to Run. Well, David, I do have to admire your balls for coming in here and saying that this song is uh, like wiser time. No, but what I, do I mean understand- is it's one I understand. Play every show and they spread out. It really, it really shows off the band live on this tour. This is the song he uses to introduce the band, which uh, is great if you've never uh, seen that. But I'll talk about it at the end. So what I want to do is go to Sam. Yeah, so 10th Avenue Freezeouts. I mean, as you said, it play, it, it's played live a ton. Again, not really a hit, but it's definitely one of the classics on the record because of what it does live. Um the great story about this song is that he basically had a you know studio full of horn you know session players horn players studio pros and he couldn't crack the song and he could not figure out what was wrong why they weren't getting it and at this point Stephen Van Zant was not in the E Street band yet he was just one of Bruce's buddies from one of their earlier bands together and he was hanging out at the studio and he said you want me to fix this thing for you and uh, I mean, it's a legendary story. It's in all their books. And he said, sure, take a stab at it. So Stephen just goes up to these guys, puts their charts down, sings them the horn parts. And within 10 minutes, they crack the song and it becomes 10th Avenue Freeze Out. And that was basically Stephen Van Zandt's ticket into the band after that. He never left Bruce's side, but for maybe a, a 10 year period in the 80s when Bruce kind of broke up the band. So it's it's a really cool story. The song uh, 10th Avenue Freeze Out, nobody really knows what that is. I've read interviews with Bruce where he says he doesn't know what it means. 10th Avenue was a street that the old keyboard player lived on, Davy Sanctious. 
and he just thought it sounded like a cool phrase. And I mean, it's a lot of nonsense lyrics, but, um, you know, it's got that Stax horn thing going on. And on this new tour with the horn section, it really smokes live. It's cool. For me, it's uh, another classic. Love it. Mr. Hillman? Oh, boy. Hard to follow that. Well, uh, Jason, for the last song you were talking about, how you couldn't find a hook in the repeated uh, line. Well, here you go. This solves this problem because the end of it repeats the same fucking line for two minutes. So, you know, there's that. Um, <laughs> I sound more angry than I mean to be on this song because it's it's not terrible. I will tell you, I love the beginning of it with the horns. And I love the story that Sam just told about the uh, Stephen Van Zant kind of helping put it all together, which is makes it a little bit cooler for me. But I'm, uh, other than that, I'm just not feeling it. I, I feel like a lot of the songs on this record, like Bruce just kept playing and playing and playing. And finally, the producer in post-production had to figure out when he was going to fade it out. I'm not a huge fan of fade outs on songs as it is. And this album is chock full of them. And the the visualization, as I talked about earlier, and, and that a recurring theme uh, around different songs in this album is great. But <laughs> just the song is just kind of meh for me i'm i'm not all about it i don't i don't think it goes anywhere other than the horns it starts out great and and after that i'm i'm not feeling it jason yeah i think for this one the groove is really good i I like the groove how it starts but then again the piano kicks in and i this that repeated piano stab staccato just i i don't understand what we're trying to do with that and uh, when you get into the actual verses, the piano fills and stuff are amazing. Like it's really good, intricate piano work and all of the verses, but then you get back to the chorus and it's back to just like, ding, 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 ding. And I feel like, like my sink is leaking or something and I need to go shut all my faucets off. It just drives me crazy. Uh, I do like his vocal on this better than Thunder Road. Thunder Road, I did not think the vocal was very good. and It was very hard for me to understand the story. This vocal is better. I like when he pushes the vocal and you can hear kind of his voice break a little bit. That sounds really authentic and really passionate. Although, to Sean's point, I, or, I, I have no idea what exactly he's singing about at all. Um but he does have an actual hook that repeats, as Sean said, one million and forty-seven times. Uh, so we over-adjusted from the previous song. Uh, also agree with Sean. Like this, just sounds like uh, it's very freelance and doesn't really have a structure to it. Uh, hence, you get the fade out. And uh, I, I like this song much better than Thunder Road. This is the uh, the closest to kind of a mainstream. Uh, type of song that you would find on this record i can appreciate that that's why they they play it a lot and they use it to introduce the band it's it's got some potential in there but i'm still struggling to really find a way to connect with it all right ian i've always liked this song like in terms of my relationship with with bruce springsteen over the years this is one of the songs i always came back to i particularly like his vocal quality on it that little squeal break in his voice in a lot of the uh, verse parts I, I just think that's very cool it's very raw i mean he and stephen van zandt have always had a, a a knack for replicating that that soul r&b stacks kind of sound that really comes through on this i mean this has always been a favorite of mine i never knew what a 10th avenue freeze out was I'm, I'm glad to hear that bruce has no idea either that makes me feel a lot better about the whole thing but uh i mean 
uh, this is a, this is one of the top top tracks on the record for me. So the song tells the story, like uh, Sam said, of how the band came to be. And Bad Scooter at the beginning that is Bruce Springsteen that came from him. And when it talks about searching for his groove, that's him trying to find essentially a more accessible sound because the first two albums didn't sell that well. And he was really kind of in a bind. This was a make or break. And that's what he means when he sings I'm all alone. So it's him that has the record contract. It's not the E street band. And so he, he just feels like it's him against the world to, um, you know, to make it big. But the song does have a little bit of kind of a late fifties, early sixties, soul R&B groove to it. It to me is the only song on this that, that could have been on the previous two albums. And I, I'll admit, I'm not a, really much of a fan of the first two. I think he does a lot of Van Morrison um, like stuff and just, it's too many words in the music and it, the, the actual music itself doesn't have a lot of bite to me, but um, I like this song, but to appreciate it, it's like I've said about other things, you have to see it live. So the third song is night. Wait, David, can I just inter- ask you one question before we move on? Just because you have a lot of background now with, with Bruce Springsteen, and a lot of reading just so I understand, is this the first E street band record Are the first two records just credited to Bruce Springsteen? The wild and the innocent is is credited to the E Street Band, isn't it, Sam? Honestly, guys, every single record is credited to Bruce himself, except the live records that they put out. So he did that. They're all credited to him, no matter who who plays on them. This is the first one with the classic E Street Band that became the Max Weinberg, Roy Bitten lineup. The the other two, the other keyboard player and drummer left the band. We'll talk about that when we get to the song Born to Run, because the old drummer actually plays on that one song. Um, but this was basically the beginning of the band as we came to know it through the like the sorry to say through the glory days of the band. <laughs> oh, and I see what you did there. <laughs> it, it's it's important to note when he was auditioning people for uh, that would eventually become Roy and Max. He auditioned sixty people. Springsteen is notorious for kind of doubting himself in the studio as far as like what version of songs to go to, and then this just insane attention to detail we'll get to that on a couple of songs uh here toward the end but that's how he got to name the balls because he was just so demanding in, in the studio and, and like sam sam will agree with this he has left so many songs on the cutting room floor that should be on his albums if you listen to him talk about the river Stephen van zandt said if i was making the river it the half those songs wouldn't be on there so he he gets into his head on overthinks things. And and that is really about to happen a couple of songs down from now. But the third song is night.
Mr. Dossis. What do you think about it? Well, I think this one has a nice horn intro. It's got a good vocal hook. This is one that I'm starting to appreciate more in each kind of uh, listen. I, I didn't listen to this record at all front and back until really preparing for this. I was one of those people that had been told that I should give the boss a chance on repeated times, but I didn't really dig into any of it until this record. And so th this song starts to give me a little bit of accessibility with the vocal hook and the horn intro. The piano is way down in the mix. It's still down there stabbing like hell, but at least it's quiet and it's not right in my face. And uh, I, I do like that. Uh, I appreciate it being farther back in the mix. Definitely good vocal here. I, I, this is another one where there's not really a chorus, um, but the verses are very good. And then when you get the chorus, if you call it that hook in there, it, it's very intriguing. Most of the time, though, in the verses, while I like the melody of them, I can't really understand any of the words. And I do appreciate that this song actually comes to an end versus the fate. So uh, that has a, a good thing for, going for it, too. Ian? I wasn't really familiar with this song until, you know, uh, preparing for this episode. I do I do like it. It's an interesting take on the old standard rock and roll songs about girls and cars, you know what I mean? But uh it's it, again, it has that more that blue collar aspect to it. And Bruce really has a knack for in his lyrics conveying that mood and that mindset and and what it's like to be you know, a blue collar guy, essentially a blue collar guy in New Jersey. And and then I think that's a part, a large part of his allure to some people is his music is very relatable. His lyrics are very relatable and it's about the working man. And that's, you know, kind of really just, this is what, uh, you know, particularly in the seventies, I guess a lot of blue collar working men did in their off time. You know what I mean? Drag racing their cars and going after girls. And, uh, you know, I just think I, again, it's it's his music and lyrics are very mood oriented in a way, and they really paint a picture. And I think as you know, the, the song isn't necessarily one of my favorites, but it is very adept at painting a picture, and it very very much fits into his style. I would definitely say that this is like a, a prime example of his his lyric writing ability. Sean. Well, all right. So like Donsis, I didn't have a lot of exposure to this album before homework for this episode. So I'll give you my initial thoughts that I wrote down a couple of weeks ago when I first listened to this. And I felt like Night, again, this is at the time, felt like Bruce had a good idea for a hook for a song, but he couldn't figure out the lyrics. So we just threw some shit together. Images of cars, chicks, and the slave labor of blue collar work. Themes that prevail in about four, maybe 500 other Bruce Springsteen songs. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> at first it did not sit well with me. I, I have to begrudgingly admit this song grew on me uh, for a couple of reasons. One, now I've never seen Bruce live, but you've got to tell me that this has opened a show at least once, because I think this would make a great opener live. Sam, can you verify? I can chime in there for you. Yes. This, oh, this opened a lot of shows um, on the river tour in 1980. It definitely opened a bunch, and he used it a lot since he put the band together back in 99 in either the one slot or the two slot. Like, it, it was always up there in set list, but it smokes live. I mean, it really does. Oh. It's it's fantastic live. 
I, I believe you. Uh, this song grew on me. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of the structure. I don't. I, Bruce lacks structure, as far as I'm concerned, with his music, and it's very. It makes it very hard to like it sometimes. This song grew on me uh, just because of the way it does resolve, and it's clean. It's got a nice kick your ass saxophone solo in there, and then it it knows when to leave the room. And I do appreciate that about this. And and like I said, I, I've not seen Bruce live. I, I would like to. I would also like to keep my house. So mm-hmm. you have to choose between the two. And uh, if I were to see him live, I'd hope to see this. And as an opener, I think it'd be a bonus. Overall, I appreciate it. And it did grow on me. All right, Sam. This song is awesome. I mean, I really, I, I love the song. To me, it's um it's Bruce's first foray really into the whole working man aesthetic that he would basically take up for pretty much the rest of his career, you know, get up in the morning at the sound of the bell, get to work late. The boss man's giving you hell. I mean, that's the opening line. And, and it's really, he didn't do that on his first two albums. This was really the first song where he wrote that kind of lyric and got into that. But again, this song fits in with the whole theme of the record of escaping and going somewhere. Now, not going very far in the song, you're just stepping out into the night, but he's going somewhere and wherever that ends up leading. So um, definitely fits the theme of the record. And, uh, it, as you guys have highlighted, and I agree with it's it's an efficient song. It's gets to where it's going quickly, beginning, middle and end. And, uh, I love it. Well, the first time I heard it was a couple of months ago. And honestly, I really didn't like it that much. I'm not a big fan of a uh, marble mouth Bruce. And, uh, he's definitely singing like he's got marbles in his mouth on this one, but it's really grown with me over time. And it's another song that the big man is very prominent on. I I think, you know, there's, there's a good reason that Clarence Clemens is on the cover of this album because he is all over it, but you were talking about being efficient, Sam, it was the fastest and easiest song to record. I just bought a book that has notes on every song he's ever recorded. And that's one of the things in there. You got to wonder if the guys in Loverboy were listening to this because this is uh, working for the weekend. It's a uh, it's a, a a theme that a lot of rock songs go to, but he would really go back to this theme on the river. There's a song called Out in the Street and Live. It's just phenomenal, but it's basically a, a almost like a retelling of this song. All right. Song number four, Backstreets. Gentlemen, February 18th, 2023, approximately 9.30 p.m. I heard this song for the first time, and this is the song that got me hooked into the boss, and I'll talk about that after we go around the horn. Ian, your thoughts on it? Well, you talked earlier about there being several epic songs on this record, and uh, you know this is, of course, one of them, in my opinion. 
this is definitely a, a vinyl kind of track order too because this finishes outside one if you're listening to it on vinyl and it's a nice closer to the first part of the record i i like this it, there's something about this song that reminds me of bob dylan for some reason there's a song of bob dylan's i can't put my finger on it but you know and it kind of has a little bit of the dylan vibe to me which bruce always kind of dances a little bit with dylan's uh vibe but uh not not ripping it off or anyway and it's not overtly obvious but it's just sometimes i i draw parallels between them i mean i think this is a great song uh, and uh you know definitely deserves to be amongst the songs regarded as classics in his catalog for sure all right jason all right backstreets piano again why do we have to fit so many notes into a single measure at 13 seconds in i hear a guitar lick in there that i really liked it went away really fast but then it came back at 20 seconds later and then at 28 and i'm like there's guitar in there okay so i see Bruce Springsteen carrying a guitar around i want to hear more guitar i want to hear less piano the horns are really good but i i want to hear the guitar so i get a little excited when i hear these guitar licks i like that it gets me good the piano builds up, the whole band kicks in. That's probably one of the highlights of the whole record is that moment when that you get that big piano build and then the whole band kicks in. Uh, really did like that. That piano melody is actually really good when we get away from just the staccato stabs and actually get into a melody. Uh, you can see the chops that Ray's bringing to the table. Bruce's vocal is actually okay. I still can't understand a word he says, but I can really get behind the passion he's singing with. I just wish there was something else besides the piano that was carrying the melody all the time. That, that to me is just the downfall of me getting behind the record because I don't like how the piano sounds and it's the primary vehicle in which all the melodies are carried. I, there are definitely parts where I can hear that this this man is obviously very talented, but how he just plays the melody is just too choppy and it's too many notes to me. I, I, I get frustrated by it. And then this song has got an organ that kind of apes the piano in there too. It, just a lot going on in the sound. I can see where when you're in a live setting that that would be really... Um, a really good sensory experience to see all of that. But when you're trying to listen to it through like headphones or in your car, it just seems like there is a ton of stuff going on and it's hard to pick out what to listen to. Maybe that's the cool part about it when you listen to it over and over and over and over again. But for me, that's just listened to it a few times. I found that to be uh, a lot. I really like that the, at 333, there's an actual guitar melodic solo to me, it's one of my favorite parts in the whole record is that part of the song, uh, the guitar melody there. I love the coda. Uh, I wish he didn't repeat the vocal hook so many times. At first, I thought he was saying hi on the back streets. I later figured out he was hiding on the back streets. It took me a little while to get it screamed at me to figure that out. I love the bass part that's in that coda. The bass sounds really great. Uh, for me, this is, this is I can see... David, when you say like this is the song that you saw live that got you hooked in, to me, this is this is probably beginning to end the best song on the record. Uh, it's still not exactly my cup of tea, but I can see all of the pieces that would come together if you were to see this band live, how this song would, would be transcendent in a live setting. I can really, I can see that. All right. Sam? Yeah, I have to agree. I, I love, David, hearing you say that that's the song that just totally 
sucked you into this world of Bruce Springsteen because that's exactly the song that should have done that to you on that show that, that you saw because um, Backstreet's isn't a song that he plays every night since he put the band back together in 99. And if, when he does play it, it's usually, you know, it's like, oh, awesome. He played Backstreet's that night and I got to see it. I've seen him a bunch of times since 99 and I've never seen it, but on this new tour, he's playing it every night. So I finally mm-hmm. got to see it and it was fantastic. Um, I think it's one of his first real epics. I think it's one of his best epics. Um, you know, it's about the ending of a friendship, the breakup of a friendship. Once you can decipher those lyrics, you'll you'll get that. Jason, it's interesting you keep talking about the piano because this record, Bruce, there's so much out there about it. So there's so many books written about it. And they made a great documentary about it uh, for the 30th anniversary in 2005 that they put out called Wings for Wheels. And when he talks about this record, he says he pretty much wrote every song on this record on piano. He wrote them on piano. And then he obviously wanted Roy Bitten to come in and be the piano player on the record and embellish and translate what he did. But these songs were all written on piano. I, I, that, might, that might, might not make you feel any better about all the piano that you're hearing, but that's why I think the piano is so prominent because these songs are all piano songs, even though they were you know, fleshed out with this Phil Spector wall of sound kind of production that you hear and muddy in some spots. But um, yeah, I mean, Backstreet's is a winner for me. I mean, I, I getting to finally hear it live, I, I really like lost it. I, I just enjoyed every moment of it. And um, it's a great song. Sean? Well, David, I think I'm about to test our friendship. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I, this song does not do it for me, like in any way. Now, I'm hoping it's like night where where it'll grow on me after time. I, I know the last five minutes it won't because the fade out drives me bonkers. Kind of like the the piano kind of gets under Jason's skin a little bit. Oh, Jason, there's 88 keys on a piano. Why not use all of them in all songs? You know, I think that's their, I think that's their mantra. I, I just don't, I can't do it guys. Now I will say, cause I'm not all about shitting on the song. I will say the visualization and the storytelling is good. Uh, common themes running throughout all of this. I, I do like that. It reads like a good book, but you have to read the lyrics in order to understand what the hell is being said so that that is hard for me it there were many parts that made it hard for me to enjoy the song and i think it might grow on me but guys i'm not gonna go out of my way to listen to it again there's plenty of other good songs that bruce does and other good songs on this record for me so sorry to say i know i'm in the minority but backstreet's just uh just isn't my jam all right. So to me, that opening piano just gives me goosebumps hearing it. And Sam can attest live. It just draws the crowd in immediately and it, it, it builds into an epic. And there's a lot of mythology around this song because Bruce a lot of times uses names of people that could be a, a man or a woman. And uh, a lot of people question the gender of Terry. Um, some people think that it's it's about a homosexual relationship, but if you go and read about it in earlier versions of this song that he tried to play live before he recorded this, he always referred to Terry uh, as a girl. It's one of those songs where he just calls back on a, a, a time and, and looks back with nostalgia and heartbreak as well. And one of the things that's interesting about him is he has a knack for on the third b- verse of songs, just taking them to a dark place. And, uh, you know, he, he uses this imagery in during the first two verses to build up the song. And then it 
you know, it gets kind of dark there toward the end. Um, I get where some people don't like at the end, him singing the same thing over and over again. Um, but like I said, it, this, this is always going to be my favorite Springsteen song because of uh, just, it turned me on to him so much, uh, seeing him live and it's the, the second of the four epics. So if you bought this album, when it came out, you're about to flip it over. And the next song is the title track born to run. Beyond the palace, Probably one of the most well-known rock songs of all time. Definitely one of the most well-known from the 70s. And that was a decade with a million songs that everybody knows. Sean, you get the honors of uh, talking about this song first. Well, uh, for as bad of a taste as the end of side one left me, I will say Born to Run makes a nice recovery. Uh, it's really the record's second wind, if in my personal opinion. And... Uh, Great visualization. I mean, I can't say that enough. I can feel it, though. I feel like I'm there. I think that's what the song Night is supposed to do. It, and it didn't do it for me early on, and then it grew on me. But Born to Run has always been one of my favorites. It's easily on my, when I take my motorcycle out, it's easily on that playlist. Because I, I think it's a song about motorcycle riding. So if you told me it was about that, I wouldn't be surprised. So I, I like Born to Run. It's got a good hook, a good structure. It feels like a complete song that was well thought out and tastefully done, which I can't say for uh, some of the other songs on the record. But uh, I'm actually a fan of this one. So, hey, one one point for me. So we mentioned earlier that the record company had given this ultimatum, like this is the album you have to you know, make or break, but they would not allow him to record the album until he gave them a single. And so this is the song that he put all his you know, eggs in this basket. It took him six months to come to finally get the version that they're going to use. There's so much written about this song and this, um, uh, is another song with the glockenspiel just very prominent part of the classic bruce springsteen in the east street sound but uh the band almost had a mental breakdown over it because he was obsessing over it so much but it paid off because he went on to be one of the biggest rock stars of all time sam i'm sure you have nothing but high praise for this yeah i mean it is you know this is this is the song. I mean, he pushed all his chips in the middle of the table on this song to basically save his career. And and I love that. Um, there's so many bands from the 70s. The music scene was so different back then where bands 
got like a record contract and got, you know, three or four albums to figure it out before they got cut loose. And there's so many bands that were on that chopping block by the second or third album. I know what happened to Rush and they did it with 2112. I know what happened to Kiss. They did it with Alive. And with Bruce, it was Born to Run. It was like, here, here you go, man. This is it. You better come up with something or you're, you're you know, you're, you're finished here. And um, this was the song. The only kind of trivia that I can contribute. I mean, the song is the song. It's an awesome, you know, it's a classic. It's what's funny is this album is so well known and there's so many classic Bruce songs on it, but we all have that one classic rock station wherever we live that plays, you know, classic rock songs we've all heard a million times, whether it's Freebird and Stairway to Heaven. None of the songs from this record get played on that station except for this one. This is really the only one that you hear on the radio, which is funny. Um and Max Weinberg didn't play on it because it was recorded before he joined the band. Um, Boom Carter, the old drummer, got to play on it. Um, and he wasn't the drummer for long in the band. He joined the band after the uh, after the second album and toured with them until they recorded this song. And then he split. So he's got an interesting, you know, little part of Bruce history, being able to say he played on Born to Run. But uh, yeah, it, it's Born to Run. I mean, it, it's great. Jason? Yeah, obviously the most familiar vocal hook. Uh, as soon as you hear it, as soon as you hear the vocal hook, you you recognize it right away. Uh, the best part for me is I don't hear a lot of staccato piano, so I'm pretty excited about that. Although now we have what, a, like a xylophone, or is that the glockenspiel? Is that it's a glockenspiel tinging all the time in my ear? So I don't know why we insist on having so many high pitch staccato stabs that are happening in the songs all the time. To that point, like in the pre-chorus, when they play the figure on the glockenspiel, uh, I personally think it would be way cooler if that was a guitar, uh, but I got to appreciate the song for what it is. Uh, the sax solo uh, about halfway through, man, fantastic. It's so good. It, it's beautiful. I, I can't I can't say anything ne- negative about that. We do get some guitar work pro- uh Finally, 244 going into the second half of the song. Uh, This is another song that's got a lot going on. There's a lot of production. There's a lot of different elements that are happening. Every time you listen to it, you can can pick out a different little thread to listen to, uh, which I do like that. That's fun. And uh, I do appreciate that it's it's probably as close to a guitar rocker as we're going to get on this album. So I like those. Uh, For me, I can see why this is the song that made the world go around for for the boss if you will it's it's probably the overall best constructed song on the record and it's probably about the closest one that i would get to that was like yeah i dig that ian david you had mentioned that you know this is probably one of the most well-known songs on the record and and, and in his catalog as well I, i mean and that's for a reason this has always been my thing with bruce like Sometimes the, the dots don't all connect for me, but when they do, they connect big. And then Born to Run is when they connect big. And there's just, there's so much great stuff in this song, production-wise, instrumentation-wise. I happen to like the Glockenspiel uh, additions to it. I always have. I think it. I think that's part of the E Street Band sound in a way, you know, just as much as maybe the horns. You know, it's it's all a, a familiar thing that you've come to know from the, from the E Street Band. For a band with three guitar players at most times, guitars aren't often prominent. And that's uh, that's a little problematic for me because th- there's three great guitar players in this band, but uh, you know it's not it's not what they're all about. So I get that too. But I mean, I think this is one of the greatest songs in this catalog, and it's there's a reason why it's played on classic rock stations all the time. It's just so anthemic. This song. I mean, I, at one point, 
I think this is how nuts people get for Bruce Springsteen in New Jersey. They wanted to make the song the state anthem of New Jersey. And, uh, you know, just to put that in context, this is a song that has the word suicide in it twice, you know, so not much of a, not much for a state anthem, but you know, that's, that's the power of the song though. It's very, it can almost overwhelm you with how, how powerful the song is. And it really, there's an excitement that it makes you feel. And that when Bruce hits on that, he's really good at it. And that's why like, over the years, I've not been the biggest fan of Bruce, but the stuff I've heard and really connected with, I connected with big. All right. The next song is She's the One, or as I like to call it, Bo Diddley meets Roy Orbison meets Buddy Holly. With a few graces and a secret places that no can fill. With a Oh, and that smile on her lips Because she knows that it kills me With a soft-faced cream standing in that door Like a dream, I wish she'd just leave me alone Because French cream won't stop And them boots and French kisses Will not break that heart of stone All right, I'm going to state this first because I don't want Steve Gleason to hate me. This is a very good song, but it does not fit on this album. This is a song that should have been on the river, if you ask me. It uh, It's the classic uh, boy, maybe a little bit out of his league, trying to hit a home run with the girl he likes. But uh, like I said, Mr. Gleason, it's a great song. I like it. I remember when I was going to see him, Steve told me he said i hope you get to see she's the one it just to me sounds like it should be on the river sam what do you think i honestly don't disagree with you saying it should be on the river i could see that angle of it um this is another one of those songs that he the current tour he's doing is weird he's he's playing songs every single night that he rarely plays every single night and this is another one of those that he's playing every single night it really takes off on the live stage. I mean, they they definitely, you know, embellish it a little bit and drag it out in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. And I mean, it's just, um, you know, everything you said, I echo. Lyrically, yeah, it's a little different than what else is on this record. But um, I don't know. It's got different movements and different parts that really take me somewhere. I love this song. It's another one I'd never seen live before this tour. And I'm very thankful that he's playing it every night because I got to see it. Ian? First of all, David, don't be afraid of Steve Gleason, okay? There's a couple of guys from a message board we can get. Head over to his house with a sock full of nickels. And, uh, you know, if he gives you any lip. All right? <laughs> I, Spoken I have... like a true New Yorker. <laughs> that comes out every so often. Um, I like this song a lot. I think it's it's very uncharacteristic of the record. Is It's almost it's almost the closest to a love song you're going to get in this context. But I, I, I like it lyrically. I just think it's a very understated but poignant 
tune. I mean, there's not a whole lot I can really add to the conversation about it other than I just think it's a, uh, you know, I don't know what, because you mentioned Steve, I don't know what his necessarily his entire opinion of the song was, but I can I could see why he would see it as like a, uh, you know, an under the radar kind of special tune on the album because it, uh, it it's hard to follow up Born to Run, uh, you know, in any track order. It's going to, you know, it's going to be hard to come in in that second slot on side two, but I, I think this song uh, fits the bill pretty well. Jason? Yeah, so I love how this song starts. The first five seconds are probably the best part of the whole song. I, I love how it comes in. And unfortunately, Ray has his piano back up with his staccato stabs front and center. So uh get a little annoyed by that. But I do like the overall sound structure. I can't understand the lyrics at all. For me, I'm just listening to his voice as an instrument and not really catching the words. But when you get to a minute 16 in and you get that hook of she's the one and the whole band kicks in, that's that's phenomenal. That That's good stuff right there. And I can just imagine if you're seeing that live, how that could really get you fired up. Um, the song never really resolves. It's, it's a big tension build. And in the whole time, that tension is just held in balance. It doesn't like you never get like that crack of a snare or whatever to like release that tension uh which is kind of fun in a way because you're waiting for it and it never comes but it gives you enough of like slow down and build back up that it it keeps you i think sam said it has a lot of parts that keep you moving uh which i really like about the song i like the guitar and the bridge i like how the sax comes in with the background vocals i like the bass melody that's playing in there and there's a huge coda and it comes to an end uh, to me if there's a song that i'm listening to on this record and it's got everything that i like and if i listen to only this song not in the context of the whole record where i'm overwhelmed by all the piano staccato stuff i can pick this song out and listen to it as a single entity and really enjoy it this is my favorite song on the record Woo-hoo. Jason, I, I do want to mention just real quick because you you hit on this, and I think it's an interesting point you mentioned about Bruce's voice being an instrument more so than you're paying attention to the lyrics, and that was always the case for me early on. But paying more attention to his lyrics, you know, since I mean, to be perfectly honest, since David has gotten into Bruce Springsteen, I've you know tried to to join in, and so I've been you know paying attention to these things a bit more. Um, and he really is a strong lyricist, but sometimes it can be easy. I feel to let it blend in with everything else because uh, it is a challenge sometimes to, to pick out Bruce's lyrics, but that's a very interesting point about his voice kind of being, you know, part of the instrumentation as well. Mm-hmm. All right, Sean. Well, uh, David, I loved your analogy about Bo Diddley, Buddy Holly and Roy Orbison. I would take Roy Orbison out and I would put in John Cafferty because this sounds like Eddie Cruisers. Yeah. Well, Sounds like Eddie. I mean, the Eddie and the Cruise. This is like watching Eddie and the Cruisers. This song, uh, the beat is there. It's it's Bo Diddley uh, from two minutes and 50 seconds on out the rest of the song, which consists of, I think, four different words just repeated a bunch of times. So that part bugs me, as as I've probably stated before. I like the song. I would love to see this live. I would love to be boogie into this live, not for the depth of the lyrics. He's told the same story about the untouchable girl in four out of the five songs prior to this one. So whatever, but I bet live this one really gets the stadium shaken. So 
Uh, overall, I like it because <laughs> I'm a sucker for bad movies, so I like Eddie and the Cruisers, and I just like the structure of the song overall. It's a it's a good bebopper. That's gonna throw us to a song that I think is just the buzzkill of all buzzkills on this album, Meeting Across the River. the song that prevents it from being a straight up 10 out of 10 in my book and you can't take it away because it's one eighth of the uh of the album it's kind of a precursor to the next song to be honest with you but i don't think we need it it's probably at this point in his career the most narrative song in nature that he has now he's gonna go on to nebraska and just tell stories left and right but it tells the uh, story of a, a man and his friend, Eddie, and they're going to go across the river, commit a crime, make $2,000 and impress his lady. But uh, this is the one I, 
to me shouldn't be on the album. I don't like it at all. Ian, what say you? You really think that? I guess I, I, I mean, I can understand where you're coming from on that, but I also see this as like, as I touched on before, very, very much like his kind of storytelling that he does about like the blue collar guy. And it's like, you know, uh, the, the lyric about, you know, when he goes back to his girl with the money and all that, and, you know, she realizes he's not a loser for once. Like, it's like that, all that blue collar dreaming and all that. I like it really, better in Atlantic city. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But, um, it just, it, it kind of, at least stays in line with that that imagery he's able to draw up a lot and uh while it's not my favorite tune on the record um i think it's expertly placed on the album and i think it's uh you know it's a a serviceable song in the context of the entire record it's not something i i dislike at all sean well the trumpet at the beginning for me is great I love it. I feel like I'm watching a casino or I'm watching an old mob movie. Like, you know, the late, it's like four in the morning. These guys are walking home with tuxes and undo, undone bow ties, you know, after a rough night. And after that, guys, the rest of the record is downhill for me. And I know that's a bit of a spoiler alert for, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to see what the visual reactions would be. Um, but on Meeting Across the River, it's a good storytelling song. The trumpet work is great. Whether or not it belongs on the record, I'll, I'll leave that up to more experts than myself. And that's, that's what I've got. That's what I noted from the song. And I didn't really have much more feelings on it one way or another. We kind of started checking out. Oh man, I'm starting to feel like Switzerland on this thing. Like it's it's David and Sam versus Jason and John, and I'm oh man, I'm holding everybody's coat. I mean, the, uh, there <laughs> there are some people that you know are passive on Bruce, and there's other people that want to have his kids, David. Uh, so you know, some of us have got to be in between, Ian. So take the Switzerland role. All right, Jason. Okay, so I like the nice the piano intro here. For all of the times I've ragged on the piano. I like the piano here. I like it with the trumpet. It makes me feel like, again, if I'm going back to a previous album club, like Fantasia, like this is going to be the jazz version of like the one with the guy who's walking through the city and the city kind of draws itself while he's walking. Uh, if you've seen Fantasia, you know what I'm talking about. I cannot understand the lyrics. I cannot follow the story. I don't really care. I don't find any sort of melody or hook in here that keeps my attention. If this was an instrumental, uh, I would like it. I, I love the musicianship that's in it. I I love what's happening in the background. What Bruce is singing is just not interesting to me at all. Uh, I would much rather have heard this, just the mu the music as maybe an extended intro into something else, but this as a song doesn't work. Sam. So I see this song really as, I mean, almost as a segue between she's the one and <clears throat> what ends the record with, with jungle land, because I mean, you just, we just shook the earth with she's the one. So this is a song is sort of the, the come down to me. It does stick out like a sore thumb on the record. It is, you know, for me, the weakest link on the record. If I, I like to play a little game called MVP and weakest link, with records and band members and stuff like that. And if I was doing that for this album, this would be the weakest link, no question. But that being said, I really agree with what Ian said. The story of it is cool. And and I love what Sean said about the, you know, the the uh the visual that the intro of the song with the trumpet 
you know, drew out of him and made him think about because, I mean, that's powerful. Music can really suck you in like that and make you see something the way it's probably what he's talking about. I mean, this is a small town, small time gangster from New Jersey going to do something on the other side of the river to make some money. And I mean, it's simple. It's not really, you know, anything groundbreaking lyrically. But again, I just feel like it was sort of a a come down from the last song and sort of a ramp up to the next song, which is another epic. So uh, not my favorite song, but also it still makes me feel something, but it's just not my favorite song on the album for sure. All right. So song number eight, we're going to close with jungle land. From the churches to the jails, tonight all is silence in the world. As we take our stand down in jungle. This is the most epic song in his catalog. To me, it is kind of almost like his version of my morning song. If you see it live, it's special. Does not play it nearly as much as you would think that it should be played. On this tour, he's only played it in New York, and I think it's pretty much a staple if you see him in New York or uh, at the Meadowlands. This is going to get played. But what I will tell you is this song had to grow on me. When I first started listening to Born to Run, I'd heard so much about this that it was built up so much in my mind that it would the expectations were too high. But the more I get into him, the more I, I read about the song, I, I absolutely love it now. I've even seen where there's a college class that you can take, and, and part of it is on the lyrics of this song. And it tells the story of uh, Mr. Rat and his barefoot girl. And it's kind of like in meeting across the river. He He's involved in a criminal enterprise. And sadly, he dies and the world moves on and doesn't even recognize his existence. Best part of this song, other than the Clarence Clemens solo, which I think they recorded for like 16 hours straight or something like that to get it perfect, is kind of the wailing and screaming of Bruce at the end. And live, this on the live versions I've heard, just makes the hair stand up on my arm. Sam... You're the biggest Bruce Springsteen fan in this roundtable, and so I thought it'd be fitting for you to get to speak about it first. I mean, it's an epic. It's another epic in the vein of Backstreets. Um, definitely his second, you know, massive epic song. I think I like it as the album closer. I think it's it fills that spot well just because there's so much going on in it, so many different parts. Uh, it's got the sax solo. It's got the yell at the end. It's just, you know everything about it is is big in the right spots um it's funny i've seen him since the reunion tour started in 99 i've probably seen him over 20 times and i've still never seen this song live (laughs) i have not seen it i haven't got to experience it live there's lots of great videos out there of it one that stands out for me is you know when clarence clemens passed away and they came back a few years later with his nephew kind of playing the sax in the e street band now 
the they didn't play the song for a while that summer and when they finally played it i think it was over in europe somewhere and there's video of that when he takes the sax solo and nails it it, it is it's something to see on video and it's definitely out there on youtube if you find it definitely check it out if you like this song but uh yeah, I mean, this to me, this is I think the people that hate Bruce Springsteen might use this song as an example of why they hate him. And the people who love him will use this song as an example of why they love him. That's really all I could say about it. <laughs> Sean? That's probably good. You don't end on me. Um, <laughs> I, I'm visualizing the studio. And the lights go up and Bruce is like, all right, guys, I got six more songs. And they're like, no, we only got time for one more. He's like, all right, I'm going to throw them all in this one. And you get Jungle Land. I am, uh, <laughs> I am not, I don't know. I would love to review this record again, maybe in four or five years after I've had more time with it. And maybe it would grow on me. It doesn't do it for me. Uh, the sax solo aside, because that is some of the best raw music I have ever heard. And when I read the story about how, it was Bruce and Clarence in the studio for like 16, 18 hours, getting every single note right. I appreciated it that much more. I don't think under labor laws now they would be able to do that. So I appreciate that part of it. But this is my long way of saying, no, I would have rather the album ended with Thunder Road as a nice coda to all of this than Jungle Land. I I've heard what everybody has said about it being epic. And um, I knew go before even listening to it with intent that it was supposed to be a pinnacle Bruce song. I don't know. Hands in the air. I just, I just, it doesn't do it for me. So sorry to end on that note, David, I enjoyed our friendship while it lasted, <laughs> uh, but hopefully we'll talk again after this, Jason. Well, it's not going to get any better. Just saying, uh, so I like the strings that's over the piano. Actually, that's very nice. Um, but then somehow we come to the end of that. And here we go again. Staccato piano stabs. Check. Moderately interesting melody. Check. Uh, big band crashing. Check. Like that. That's solid. Mediocre vocal with unintelligible storytelling. Check. Got that. All right. Brief moments of awesome stuff, specifically from three minutes to 328, the guitar solo. Awesome. Not enough of that. Not enough of it. Uh, let's see. Unwanted uh, piano interlude. Check. Amazing saxophone break. Check. So the mid the mid-tempo groove that kicks in in the middle of it, that's unique. Haven't had that yet. That's cool. I like that. But all in all, this to me is just, this is prototypical Bruce. It's the same format we've heard now repeatedly through the record. I just, I'm with Sean. I don't find it to be very interesting. And to be honest with you, I never got to the end of this song. Uh, it just, I, I couldn't. I'm like, okay, I'm good. I'm done. I listened to this thing 20 times. I think I might've heard the end of it twice. Jason, you happen to be you happen to be looking down as I flipped you off a few minutes ago. Oh, I apologize. Uh, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I'm glad he's here. There's safety in numbers. I was worried about my descent, and uh, thank you, Jason, for standing up. Love you, Sean. See you in Chicago. <laughs> All right, Ian, what do you think? I understand 
um, you know, kind of to Sam's point, like either you really like this or you really don't like this can be used as an example of a reason why you really like Bruce or why you really don't. And I understand what, what Jason is kind of saying, but cause it's, you know, it ticks all the, you know, quote unquote boxes for Bruce Springsteen. But the problem is when you're looking at a record like this, that's from 1975 and has been well-established as a classic. And then so much has come after it. And Bruce has a longevity that's lasted to present day. There are those boxes to tick off, but at the time there weren't like these things weren't established as routine Bruce Springsteen things in 1975. You know, this was kind of new at the time. So I try to take things in that context a little bit more. And there's a lot to really like in this. This is almost, and bear with me on this one, because this is an odd stretch. This is almost like, you know, uh, Jason got a little, you know, carried away in that other uh, album club, you know, that one. But uh, this is almost like Bruce's 2112. And as much as there's modes in this song, it's a, it's a, I, I think epic maybe is the wrong term to use, but it's just a, an extended piece of music with different sections to it. So I think it works that way. And, and, also you tend to look at albums in the modern day without the setup of an album without a side one side two and things opening and closing sides because things have become more you know disjointed that way where you're just you're dealing with songs more than maybe albums and i think for a context of an actual album it's a hell of a way to close an album i mean you know he's swinging for the trees on this one and uh you know i think there's a lot of reasons to like this i get it it is long you know, and if you're not, if you're not on board, you're going to check out early on this one. But I mean, you know, at the end of the day, this has one of Clarence Clemens' most notable saxophone solos. And, you know, it's got to be, there's something got to be said for that, you know, and uh, I, I, I happen to think it, it, it does do a fair job of closing out this record. All right, gentlemen, as we close this out, I'm going to go around the horn. We're going to have a 10 point scale. Sam, what's your rating? On the record from one to 10, mm-hmm. this is a solid nine for me ian uh i'm gonna hit this with a seven uh because i guess maybe maybe coming into it you know, i built it up in my mind a bit because it is regarded as such a classic um and it didn't necessarily you know hit every time for me but it's a very very strong record and i i did enjoy listening to it and i did i purchased this on vinyl david so i will be listening to it again jason so i'm gonna reference one of my favorite pods that's not in the state of America universe, which is called a thousand and one complaints. It's a podcast that talks about the thousand and one records you have to listen to before you die. This one is on the list. They haven't reviewed it yet, but I can just imagine listening to this record and knowing that this is one of the thousand and one records you must hear before you die. And now that I did it, I'm glad. So now I can die and not have to listen to it anymore. But that being said, I do think you should listen to it before you die. Because I do appreciate how it is very likely, as much as Sean and I have listened to this record and went, nah, not for me. I can also picture a lot of people listening to this record and really identifying and hooking onto it. So I don't want to take all of my disparaging of this record and put it out there like this record's terrible and you should never listen to it. No, you should listen to it because very likely there's something in here that is going to speak to you and it's going to grab onto you. It just didn't do it for me. So I'm going to give the record a three, which is ridiculous, but I get it. It's what it is. Wow. 
I think some people's internet connection just punched out. Maybe All on right. purpose. Sean, just remember, you've been to my house now. I like. I have it. been to your house, and you, I've you... drank very good <laughs> bourbon at your house, and I've had a great time. Somebody get All the right. hard pedals and uh, hit David in the chest with them. I think. All uh, right, uh, Sean, just killed them. Wh- what you got? Well, I want to say before we go, uh, I've been on two State of America Album Club episodes so far, and Donsis has used a generous amount of Disney references in both of them. So I want to just call that out and appreciate it. Thank the folks at Disney for not suing us uh, for copyright infringement. Um, Great, great job as always. I guess when you have 12 kids, you're going to relate to Disney. So you've got that. This was a five for me uh very just middle of the road i i like what jason said um if you love it or if you hate it this will you know give you a reason to do both i like that as the more i've listened to this song uh record it has grown on me i don't have it on vinyl yet i'm gonna get it uh just because i prefer that and i want to hear the full experience of of listening to it front and back through a record um but that said it's I've listened to it. I've been there. Uh, I will spin it a couple more times again. Um, I'm not going to go out of my way and I'll talk about some of the great spots on it, but I'll talk about how much it let me down in some cases too. But that's, that's me. That's a five. Well, if this was six months ago, I would probably agree with a lot of you, but it's not. My eyes were opened. I'm going to give it nine and a quarter stars. It's my favorite Bruce Springsteen album. It's not his best. His best is Darkness on the Edge of Town, in my opinion. Uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town is a better written album. It's a it's a deeper album, but this is always going to be my favorite because I saw all but Jungle Land and Meeting Across the River at my first ever show. And like uh, Sam said, Backstreet's is not one that you just get all the time. And I got that, and she's the one. So, you know, like Sam said, he'd been chasing back streets for a long time. I will say this over and over again. You cannot judge this man till you see him live. He was 73 years old, played, I believe, 27 or 28 songs. He does not stop moving. And it was seven, either 17 or 19 people, I forget, people on that stage. And in a day and time where if you go to a, an acoustic show, you can't hear the people playing because of the people talking, 17,000 people were completely silent when he sang, I'll see you in my dreams acoustically at the end. He absolutely captivates a crowd unlike anybody I have ever seen. He gives it his all. He's worth $500 million. He doesn't do this for the money at this point. This is strictly because he loves doing it. And he's been on tour straight now since like the first week of February. And he's been in Europe for like, seems like six weeks. And from what I understand, he's going to take a couple of months off and then he's going to come back next year with with another tour. And from what I understand, this is probably the most scripted tour he's ever done as far as playing the same songs. Uh, Apparently he has a tendency on the second leg of all of his tours to really shake things up. So uh, I will go see multiple shows on the next one. I hope Sam and I can somehow meet up halfway and catch a show. Um, but like I said, it, it I would have agreed with you guys six months ago, but I, I saw him and I, I'm a true believer. I do want to thank everybody for coming on. Ian, I'm going to put you on the spot. You're the host of the next album club. What's it going to be? Uh, 
fuck you. That's what it's going to be because I didn't. <laughs> uh, we're not. We're not. We're not finishing the episode until you tell us. I got some. I do have a list, so give me one second. Please don't be the Wood Brothers. I'm going to make it the fucking Wood Brothers now. Just or put Stephen me on the spot. Steele. I'll tell you that right now. Hit him with a bag of nickels. Ian. What was the second one you just said? <laughs> or Stephen Steele's. I already. I just did Stephen Steele's. Yeah, you did that on right? Classic Wax. Uh, we haven't done any uh, anything in the realm of metal yet, so we're going to do Metallica's Black Album. Oh, that'll, that'll be fantastic. Please, please invite me to this. <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't know. You might be banned at this point. If they I know. I might be, be, might be out of the state of Amorica sphere after this. So uh, Metallica, the Black Album, will be next. Since we have our producer on here, Jason, I'm going to tell him, I think we need to play out with the version of Thunder Road off the live 75 to 85 album more stripped down version it's phenomenal thank you all for coming on and as our buddy jason would say stay tall everybody
this guitar and I learned how to make it talk and my car's out back if you're ready to take that long walk from your front porch to my front seat the door's open but the ride it ain't free I know you're lonely and there's words that I ain't spoken but tonight we'll be free all the promises will be broken there were ghosts in the eyes of all the boys you sent away they haunt this dusty beach road and the skeleton frames of burned out chevrolets they scream your name at night in the street your graduation gown lies in her eggs at their feet and in the lonely cool before dawn from your It's a time full of losers and I'm 